It is a great privilege uh, to be with you this morning. Uh, First, I need to start by thanking you. Uh, This congregation has been a long-standing partner uh, with us at Reformed Theological Seminary, and so I am deeply uh, grateful for you. Many uh, here have been individually supporting uh, the work of the seminary for some time, and so I come uh, with greetings and come to thank you for uh, that partnership and uh, hope and pray that will continue for many, many years into the future. Uh, I want to be looking at Luke 15 this morning, so if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Luke 15, well-known passage. I trust that we will all be familiar with these three parables that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records for us in Luke chapter 15. I'll read the entire chapter, although it's a large section because it is so familiar, I trust that'll make following along all the easier for us. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for the opportunity to come and to hear from you. We pray, Father, that your Spirit would inhabit the praises of your people, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that you would take your word and that you would apply it to our hearts and our minds and our lives so that we might know you better, so that we might worship you more extensively and so that we might serve you more faithfully. We thank you for Jesus, and we come in his name and for his sake. Amen. John Piper, many years ago, used an illustration to talk about what ministry is like. Piper said that ministry is like living in a hall of mirrors. If you've ever visited the carnival, you no doubt know exactly what I'm talking about. The hall of mirrors where you walk in and there's one mirror and you look in this one mirror and you're short and fat. You look in another mirror and you're tall and thin and you look in yet another and you're upside down. Well, Piper's point was that is what life in ministry can oftentimes be like. And whether that ministry is in a more formal setting like this or a more informal setting as we minister to our neighbors and we minister to our family members who may not know Christ, every one of us is a minister of the gospel. Every one of us is in ministry. And that ministry can oftentimes be debilitating because people are oftentimes free to share their opinions. 
And we can look into those opinions. We can receive that feedback, that criticism, and we can so easily lose the center that we need to hold on to in order to persevere in ministry. Ministry can beat us down and it can wear us out. And the thing, I think, that wears us out more than anything else, the thing that is most discouraging of all, is when we see the feedback and we see the criticism and we begin to believe it. And someone tells us, oh, you're short and fat. And so we begin to either stretch, right, or go on diet. Someone tells us we're tall and thin and we begin to eat more so that we can gain weight. Someone tells us that we're upside down and then we really begin to lose that center. How do you go on ministering? How do you go on persevering in ministry? Well, for me, it is one of the ways that I have been able to persevere for this long is by reminding myself of the great love of God. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. I need to be reminded of that, and I, I think you do too. If we are going to persevere in ministry through all of the criticism and the feedback that tells us we're this or we're that, and we're going to avoid the temptation to actually believe that and try to change and, and be what that person wants us to be, you see how we can easily lose the center because if we begin to morph and change to meet this criticism and we then begin to morph and change to meet this one, before long we're, we're trying to be everything to everybody. And we're nothing in the process. In order to persevere in ministry, I have needed to be reminded of how great God's love is for me, of how great God's love is for us who believe. This passage in Luke 15, I think, is really all about the love of God. That's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to show us the love of God. And he gives to us three parables, three parables to answer the grumbling and complaining of the Pharisees and the scribes. If you look at verse 2, we're told very plainly that the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling at Jesus because he is receiving sinners and eating with them. How dare he? Perhaps, perhaps their intentions were good. And they... We're really looking out for Jesus and had his best intention in mind, his best uh, interests in mind. And so maybe they were concerned that he was just getting his hands dirty in a way that would compromise his ministry. Maybe they were really concerned that, that people would begin to think that birds of a feather flock together. And so they were grumbling and complaining that Jesus wasn't putting distance between himself and these sinners. Rather, he was eating with them. He was receiving them. And so Jesus tells three parables. I think it's fine to call them three parables, but look with me at verse 3. Look what Jesus, or at Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us. So he told them, that is, Jesus told them this parable in the singular. And yet three parables follow. You see, what Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us, what Jesus is doing here is he's not telling three different, disconnected parables. 
So often, I think, we look at the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son, and and we look at them independently, and it's perfectly fine to do that. But sometimes we miss the connections between the three. I think it's important to see what Luke says here is that Jesus is telling one parable, and he's telling one parable in three different ways. One parable with one overarching meaning. He's telling in three different ways. And I think what Jesus has in mind in response to the grumbling and the complaining of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus is saying, you want to know why I'm associating with sinners? You want to know why I am eating with sinners? Let me tell you what the love of God looks like. And so he tells This one parable in three different ways to communicate one lesson in three different circumstances. So I want to look for a few minutes this morning at each of these three parables, these three versions, if you will, of one parable. And I want to draw from each One lesson about what the love of God looks like. As we look first at the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus begins and tells a story of a man who has a hundred sheep. And losing one, he leaves the 99 in the open country. Fascinating, isn't it? This parable raises a lot of questions. What about these 99? And we don't have time to go through and answer all of those questions this morning. If you have questions, I would encourage you to come and see me or anyone else after, um, any of the other elders or pastors after this morning's service, to talk this through. But I think the main point that Jesus is trying to make here is that this shepherd so loves the one that is lost that he's willing to sacrifice the 99 for the sake of the one. How thankful I am that the love of God is not utilitarian. Utilitarianism would tell us that you don't leave the 99 and go after the one. You you leave the one for the good, the greater good of the 99. But the love of God, Jesus says, is not like that, you see. And I think that's the first thing that Jesus wants us to see. The love of God is such that no expense is spared. No sacrifice is too great. For God is such, the love of God is such, that he would leave the 99 for the sake of the one. My brothers and sisters, isn't that exactly what the cross is all about? Because at the cross, God spared no expense. There was no sacrifice too great. Isn't that what the cross is all about? That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Romans 8 has to be, I think, my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. And it's at verse 28 through verse the end of the chapter that is my favorite portion of my favorite chapter in the Bible. But it's around verse 32 where Paul says, He did not spare His own Son. 
but gave him up for us all. And how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see what Paul is saying. God has already, on the front end, given you everything. He spared no expense. He has withheld no sacrifice. He did not spare his own son. And given that, How will he hold back from us anything that we need? You see, the overwhelming point that Paul seems to be making in Romans 8 is that the cross is a picture of exactly what Luke is saying about the love of God in word form in Luke 15. That the cross is a picture that God spares no expense That no expense is too great. That no sacrifice is too much. And this, my brothers and sisters, ought to lead us to worship. I was reflecting this week on that great hymn that we know and love so well, especially if you're a little bit older, have a little bit gray hair or no hair uh, on your head. Uh, You'll know and love this hymn, no doubt, How Great Thou Art. How Great Thou Art. Stuart Hine, I think, was the man who, uh, the American, who uh, took that word, that that hymn, uh, the poem as it existed, and he added verse 3. And verse 3 really is what I want to focus on this morning. And, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sins. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. You see, what he realized is that when we see that that the cross, when we see Jesus hanging there, if you will, for me, he bled and died to take away my sins, when we see that the love of God displayed for us there, that there is no expense too great, it ought to lead us to sing with all of our souls how great thou art. But the whole point that Jesus is making here to the Pharisees is that it ought also to lead us to love the loveless. To love those who maybe aren't lovable. The love of God, having experienced this kind of radical love which no expense is spared, ought to push us to love even sinners and eat with them. Second thing Jesus says in the parable of the lost coin about the love of God is he tells this story about a woman who lost ten silver coins. It's fascinating how Jesus has this progression. First, he starts with one out of a hundred that is lost, one percent. Then he starts with one out of ten silver coins, ten percent is lost. And then in the third parable, the progression continues and it's one out of two sons that is lost, fifty percent. But nonetheless, here in the parable of the lost coin, Jesus tells a story about a woman who lost ten coins, and she 
lights a lamp and she sweeps the house and she looks for it until she finds it. And really, the only difference between this parable and the one, or this form of the parable, right, and the one before it, is this word in verse 8, diligently. She seeks diligently until she finds it. And that one word could also be translated. In fact, if you have a different version of the Bible besides the ESV that I was reading here, it may say carefully or thoroughly. That word could be, interpre- could be translated in any of those ways. The whole point seems to be that she leaves no stone unturned. She leaves no detail unattended to in her search, in her quest to find this missing coin. And isn't that the point that Jesus wants us to see about the love of God? It's not just that the love of God is such that no expense is spared, but it's also that the love of God is such that no detail is left unattended to. How grateful I am that our God is not simply a big-picture God. He is that. Don't get me wrong, God plans the end from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning because He has established it. But our God is a God of the details. It's from the pit of hell, isn't it? That that old phrase that has been passed down through time that it's the devil that's in the details. Oh no. Oh no, my friends. Ephesians 1 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. And in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, that great doxology at the end of that great difficult section of Romans, He says, For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. Our God is a God of the details, and He has left no detail of our lives unattended to. Not only has He arranged and so orchestrated all of the details of our lives to bring us to faith in Christ, but He is working in and through all of the details of our lives to bring us to heaven once and for all. Praise God. I did my Ph.D. in Scotland at the University of Edinburgh many years ago now, feels like many, many years ago, although it was probably only about 15, uh, 13, 14 years ago. I studied a man by the name of Samuel Rutherford, and Samuel Rutherford was one of the commissioners to the Westminster Assembly. Uh, He helped to write the Westminster Confession of Faith that our denomination holds to, that our seminary holds to. And Rutherford, in the course of his ministry, wrote 365 letters to parishioners, to friends, fellow pastors, and those letters are among the most devotional literature there is in Christendom, outside of the Scriptures. But in one of his letters, Rutherford had this counsel for someone who had lost a loved one. He said something like this. This is not a direct quote, but Rutherford said that when you and I get to heaven... When we get to heaven, we'll look back over the course of our lives and we'll see that if anything had happened to us in our lives other than what did happen, we would never have made it to heaven. Think about that. that when we, he's saying when we get to heaven... We're going to look back over our lifetime and we're going to see every detail, the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
And we're going to see God's hand in and through it all. And that if these things, even the bad things and even the the ugly things, had never happened, we would have drifted away. Or we never would have put our faith in Christ to begin with. Or we would have gotten comfortable in our ease and turned our backs upon Him. But we will see that if anything had happened to us, if anything had happened other than what did happen, we would never have made it to heaven. God is a God whose love leaves no detail unattended to. He leaves no stone unturned. Thirdly and finally is the parable of the prodigal son teaches us about the love of God as well, and this one we know best of all. And Jesus says there's a man who has two sons. The younger son comes to him and asks for his share of the inheritance. Father gives him his share of the inheritance, and he takes it, and he goes off into a far country. He squanders it in reckless living. Verse 30 tells us with prostitutes. It's absolutely astounding. I I don't know as a father what I would do put in this circumstance. My son came to me and asked for his share, if you will, of what was owed to him legally. I'm not sure how I would have responded. But here, this son, perhaps the, the most difficult thing of all was what the son was not saying or what he was saying by what he was really saying, what was Im- implied in what he was saying here to his son. When he's asking for his share of the property, really, and you, you know this if you've looked at this passage at all, what he's really saying is, Father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I, I wish I don't want you in my life. I don't need you in my life. I just want your money. I just want what's lawfully mine. The law said right? That the father owed the firstborn son a double share of the inheritance. And so, since there were two sons, in this case, the oldest son was entitled to two-thirds of the father's estate. The younger son would have been entitled to one-third. And so the father shows amazing love to this rebellious son. that asks for him just to give him what he's due when he's dead. One-third of his estate. Those of you, some of you in this room will have large estates. Some perhaps not so much, right? But no matter what size estate the Lord has entrusted to us, imagine trying to scrape together one-third of it in liquid, easy cash to give to your son. In this context, this father no doubt would have had to sell off property to try to come up with one-third, and yet this father does it. When the son says, I want nothing to do with you, father. I don't even, I want nothing, I don't want you in my life at all. I just want what the law says you have to give to me, and I want to get as far from here as I can. And he goes off into a far country. He gets as far away from his father as he can get. The first manifestation of the love of the Father is that he actually gives him the third of his estate. And he goes through the trouble and no doubt the humiliation publicly. What would the community have said 
and he gives him a third of his estate. But you know the rest of the story and how that really paints out the love of God for us in a profound way. The son, after spending all of it in riotous living, after spending it with prostitutes and squandering it, he comes to himself, he comes to his senses, and he says, even the servants have it better with my father. So I'll arise and I'll go back to my father and say, Father, treat me as a servant. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And obviously the father, such is the love of the father for the son, he's obviously scanning the horizon every day, waiting for the hope, for the chance that he might see a figure crest the horizon, the figure of his son. Because as soon as he sees him, the father in another undignified act hikes up his robe and he runs to his son. The son that is spat in his face, figuratively speaking, has squandered his money, has rebelled against him, wanting nothing to do with him. The father runs to him, throws himself upon him, puts the robe around his shoulders, the family ring on his finger, kills the fattened calf, and throws this great celebration. You see the point that Jesus is making here. The father treats the son. And so all of the rebellion, all of that rebellion never happened. The first definition that I learned for justification when I had first become a Christian was the little rhyme that no doubt you will be familiar with as well, that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. Well, I know now, being much older and hopefully a little more wise, uh, that justification means more than that. But it certainly doesn't mean less. Just as if I'd never sinned. And isn't that the picture here, is that the father, in his lavish outpouring of love, treats the rebellious son just as if he'd never rebelled, just as if he'd never sinned, just as if none of this had ever happened. It's a beautiful picture of the love of God for rebellious sinners. And you and I, we are the younger sons. Perhaps we're the older son, too. But every one of us who has come to faith in Christ, we are the younger son. We have rebelled against our Heavenly Father. We have said we want nothing to do with you. We want your blessings. We want the food. We want the the, the rain. We want the clothing. We want the gifts and abilities. We want all of the blessings that you provide that belong to you, but we do not want you. And we go off into far countries. And we spend it on ourselves, doing as we please with his blessings. And the great blessing of it all, Jesus says, is that our Heavenly Father treats us just as if we'd never done any of it. Because, and this is the gospel, 
because he treats his son, Jesus, just as if he'd lived our lives. He treats us in this way just as if we'd never sinned because he treats Jesus just as if he had sinned every sin and every rebellion of my life and of your life and of the lives of all who would ever put their faith in him. That's the glory of the gospel. The love of God is such that he leaves no expense spared, no detail unattended to, and no sin unforgiven. No sin unforgiven. The 19th century novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, who wrote Crime and Punishment, among many others, the brothers Karamazov, uh, something like that. I always have a hard time pronouncing that one. But... um, was a professing Christian. And when he died, or when he was dying, and was on his uh, bed, he called for his family to come and surround him in his last moments. He asked his wife to take up the Bible and to read Luke 15 to him, and especially the parable of the prodigal son. And after reading that parable, this is what he said. My children, never forget what you have just heard. Have absolute faith in God and never despair of his pardon. I love you dearly, but my love is nothing compared with the love of God. Even if you should be so unhappy as to commit a crime in the course of your life, never despair of God. Humble yourself before Him. Implore His pardon, and He will rejoice over you as the Father rejoiced over the prodigal son. Isn't that the picture that we're left with here in Luke 15? What a great and vast, and unmeasured, and boundless, and free love that God bestows on you and me, rebels. No expense is spared, no detail is left unattended to, and no sin, no rebellion is too great. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that you are mighty, that you are sovereign, and yet, Father, that you have drawn near in and through Christ and shown us in word and in deed that you are loving as well. How great your mercy is, how vast your love for us is. Remind us of that, Father, and as we turn and we put our faith in you, we come to our senses and we turn, we return, How grateful we are that you lavish that love upon us. Even as we grow weary in ministry, even as we grow weary and and worn down by criticism and feedback, Father, I pray that you would empower us to go on remembering the great love that you have for us in Christ. And we ask that you would receive all the glory and the praise, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
you will stand, we'll sing the hymn of response. It's number 498, Jesus, What a Friend.